Welcome to Passing Mirrors CAM Podcast, conversations on aerodigestive management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, speech-language pathologist Carmen Bartow, having a conversation on early intervention in the ICU and dysphagia. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. I'm here today again with Carmen Bartow. You may remember her from previous episodes. Carmen Bartow is a speech-language pathologist who has worked for, I think I said to you, Carmen, last time, decades. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's true. true. She's worked for a while as a speech-language pathologist and worked in a level one teaching hospital, level one trauma center and teaching hospital. Um, She has worked in, I believe you worked, did you work in an LTAC for a little bit? I did. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I say it's a little LTAC experience, a lot of acute care experience. And I asked Carmen to come back on today because I wanted to chat with her about early intervention, not early intervention with pediatrics, but the role of SLPs getting in early with our patients in acute care, getting into that ICU and talking about some of the things that we can do and what our role is and you know how we can help the patients better we're in the ICU. So welcome, Carmen. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you um, defined what I would be talking about. If it was actually um, early intervention with children, people would probably be a little disappointed. <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't have much to say, but I, I can talk about early intervention in the ICU. Well, thanks. Well, one reason I did that is when we say just early intervention, I've had people think I'm talking about EI with pediatrics. And so I want right. to make sure that was clear. Right. So in thinking about early intervention, what we're going to be talking about is the ICU, the intensive care unit, getting to those patients and providing services. Can you share a little bit like a highlight of what services can be provided in the ICU by speech language pathologists? Sure, sure. You know, I I actually feel like most of the services that we provide anywhere else in the hospital can be provided in the ICU. You know, I think as, you know, time went on, like you said, I've been around for decades in the field and things really changed how we cared for patients in the ICU. I think especially over the last 10 years where we're not just letting patients rest on the ventilator. You know, we were seeing early intervention with our PT and OT colleagues and, you know, seeing those early mobility programs. I know a lot of the ways that physicians were treating patients with changing sedation and trying to keep patients more awake. So I think there's just been a lot of things that have changed that has have has allowed speech pathologists to also get in and provide the intervention that we're providing really everywhere else. I think we can provide communication, swallowing, language, cognitive, really all of the intervention that we provide in in the step-down units. I think we should at least be attempting to provide those services in the ICU as well. Yeah, oh, I agree with you completely. And I think you actually made a great point because anything we do anywhere else, we should be able to potentially do in the ICU. Mm-hmm. depending on the patient readiness. They need to be awake and not, you know, alert-ish. They don't have to be fully cognitively intact, but they do need to be able to 
participate with your assessment. Those patients that are experiencing you know, moderate to severe ICU delirium, those are the patients that you're going to continue to check on. Maybe you're going in patient, uh, providing some family education. And then as soon as some of that delirium clears up, that's when we're going to really get more involved. And I know we say too with um, trait patients, we want them to be relatively medically stable, mm-hmm. you know, that their blood pressure, heart rate's not fluctuating all over the place that, you know, they're at a, they're at a place where they're not having to use their resources to manage their disease process, so to speak. They have the, a little bit of energy that can go towards communication, swallowing, and those things that we'd work on. Like we're not going to be taxing their systems to do those things. We're just going to be actually supporting them and helping them improve. So let's share a little bit with the listeners about like how you got into the ICU, you know, like what, what helps you get that foot in the door? Yeah, well, that's a, you know, I think there's a great question and kind of a tricky one. And um, I wish it were really easy. Um, and I know in some facilities, facilities, it is. I think in some facilities, you may already have established trach teams or you may already have um, excellent rapport and teamwork in the ICU. But I think in some facilities, they may still be a little bit you know, quote unquote, old school, and may not be realizing the value of speech pathology services in the ICU. And I think that's where SLPs really have to get in and advocate and have the opportunity to make changes, which, you know, is always can always be a um, a great thing, I think. So, um, you know, if I think if you are in one of those facilities where you're not getting the consults. I think that's one of the first steps is to get the consults. And that can be achieved a lot of different ways. I think making friends with your RT, your respiratory colleagues, so they're out there advocating for you because often they're the ones that get the consults before us. Um, I think another way is seeing if you can round, you know, do some ICU team rounds. And then a big one is establishing a trait team order set. And an order set is just like the day the tracheotomy is performed, there should be a standard set of orders that goes in. And those orders should be to OT and PT and registered dietitian and nursing, and then also speech pathology for both communication and swallowing assessments. So lots of different ways to get in there, not super easy, um, but I think with some time and persistence, you know, can, it can really make a difference. In the hospital I worked in, we were able to establish order sets. You mentioned trach and vent. We were able to establish, you know, we had a stroke order set. We had a one for trauma and and brain injury and mild concussion. We had order sets that actually fit for different diagnoses and help trigger a speech consult and get us in a little bit, a little bit faster. So it is a, I think that is a good place to start. I would add to that finding a champion. If you're not in those places yet, like if you're not in the ICU yet and finding someone who supports speech, even if it's like a physician, you've worked with somewhere in the hospital that you get to know, you know, getting them to kind of get, help you get your foot in the door if possible, you know, maybe if you've established those relationships. Yeah, I totally agree. Another, another great point. Yeah. When you get into the ICU, when you, with where you were working, let's talk a little bit 
uh, about the trach and vent patient? Because I think we get a lot of questions. Um, that's an area I think people want more information on, you know, how to be more involved with their patients with tracheostomies and mechanical ventilation. What is your primary focus getting in the door of the ICU and working with them in early, inter- you know, when we're thinking early intervention? Yeah, so you know, it, it was funny. Some sometimes our we I was part of a trach team at our facility, and our nurse practitioner that was part of the trach team was very pro speech pathology and and you know pro early intervention for all disciplines. And so sometimes you know she would get the get the order for a tracheotomy, and it might be that they didn't trach the patient until later that afternoon. And the orders would go in sometimes before the trait actually even happened. So we were getting orders, you know, very, very, very early. And so, of course, you know, one of the the very first things is to just, you know, do your thorough chart review, learn everything that you can about that patient, medical history, current status, mental status, respiratory status, uh, everything you know, everything that you would normally get from that medical uh, that medical chart. Then, of course, going into the patient's room, looking at the ventilator, looking at the ventilator settings, and I think that's a great place to start for speech pathologists too, is to learn about what types of ventilators you have at your facility, learn about different modes and settings, so you have an idea for readiness for things like cup deflation, inline valve placement. Um, So just really, you know, taking a look at the patient, at the ventilator, if there's family around, starting to conduct those family interviews. And then probably for most of our patients, one of the very first things that we'll do is to try to establish some means of nonverbal communication. And of course, you know, some of our patients in the ICU truly are too sick, too delirious, um, too unstable to do anything right away. But there's also, you know, more than a handful of patients that would be ready for some type of intervention. And so I think often it starts with nonverbal means of communication, watching that patient really closely, great rapport and teamwork with respiratory therapy so that as soon as your patient does meet your criteria for cuff deflation and valve placement, you're working toward that. I know we're going to talk about swallowing too, so we can move into that at, you know, whatever you're ready, but those would be some of the first, I think the first steps. Before, well, this will actually start us with swallowing, but I don't want to start with the trach patient. I want to back up a little bit to intubation. I forgot to ask you, I'd wanted to talk to you a little bit about intubation because some I know that we sometimes think we have to wait, you know, until after they're extubated before we can work with them. That may be even earlier, you know, that we're getting involved. What are some of your thoughts on patients who are intubated and what we can provide for them? Of course, ideally getting those consults even during intubation could allow us to get in, learn more about the patient, um, learn more, you know, about what we could do to perhaps facilitate Um, some means of communication for those patients. I mean, again, those are the type of patients that I think even a couple of decades ago, they were just remaining sedated. And now they're keeping those patients awake more. And we're even seeing intubated patients walking in the hallways, which is something that we never, ever would have seen, you know, at least when I first was, was in acute care. And so if patients are up walking in the hallways with a 
endotracheal tube down their throat, then, you know, certainly we would hope that they would have some means to be able to communicate. And so I think that would be, you know, one of the things that, that we could establish as early as possible. Yeah. And I agree. That was actually my thought is I'm with, like you, when I started practicing, if they were intubated, they were sedated. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even do what we now think of as a sedation vacation. You know, when they try to start right. the process of weaning them, they would, but that was because they thought they were going to be extubating them. They didn't do it for how we see now to walk them with the intubation tube in place and everything. Yeah. So yeah, I think we can get in there for communication a little bit more. What about, so let's, let's move towards dysphagia and let's first, if we can stick with the intubation and the patient who doesn't go to the tracheostomy, but just gets extubated and what we know or what we need to consider for those patients, you know, and getting them eating and drinking. Yeah, I think there is not a great standard of care out there. And if you look for those standards of care, I think we have a ton of research out there now. You know, we've we've got a lot of work by Martin Brodsky and his colleagues. You know, so we're we're learning more about post-extubation dysphagia. And we've learned that even 48 hours of intubation can cause patients to have dysphagia. Of those patients, a lot of them, maybe around half, have silent aspiration. And so that of course, makes us think, well, we probably should be doing some instrumental exams on these patients if they're at risk for aspiration, especially if they have those other risk factors, like they're elderly, they've been intubated for maybe a week, they have other comorbidities, they have ICU weakness or that critical illness myopathy or polyneuropathy. And, you know, you have all these, all of these layers, I think, of, you know, different causes of dysphagia in that patient population. But we know that endotracheal tube can cause that rubbing and laryngeal injury. So those patients certainly are at risk for aspiration and they need an assessment. And so, you know, we also hear, when should we be assessing these patients? Is it 24 hours later? Is it four hours later? And I don't think we really have a great answer to that question. I think for a while there was that arbitrary 24 hour rule, but we don't really know where that came from. And the riskier thing to me is if we're sticking to that 24 hours, which I think we're kind of getting away from, it's like, then what if the patient needs medication? Or what if someone else is making the decision to put a patient on a diet because those speech pathologists won't get in there until 24 hours? Uh, that That's even riskier, I think. So uh, if we get a consult on a patient that's recently been extubated, even if it was just a few hours ago, I I think, and I think what the research is really showing us too, is we need, we need to just do an assessment when we get the consult and when the patient is awake and, and it's appropriate. Typically, we start with a bedside eval. I know, we, you know, those bedside evaluations, of course, we know they're more subjective, but there's a ton of value to starting with the bedside. Uh, get a lot of information, do that oral MEC exam. And and I think it can also really help us decide which exam is more appropriate. What is it that we're really looking for? Should we be doing a video fluoroscopy or a fees? So starting with that bedside and then probably, maybe not for all, but for a lot of our patients going to the instrumental exam. When I was 
practicing. So I'm going to show my age a little bit. We had that kind of arbitrary 24 to 48 hours after extubation is when we would go in and evaluate Mm -hmm. Um, almost never before the 24 hour mark. And sometimes even as long as 48 and we based it on how long they were intubated. Mm -hmm. So if they were like a one, two, three day intubation, we were closer to the 24 hours. If they were intubated more like seven, eight or nine days, we were closer to the 48 hours where that came from. I have no idea. It's just kind of what we did. Yeah. Um, like, and as you said, now, thankfully more research is being done to kind of look at that. So if we've got our patients who let's say they don't transition to just extubation, they end up having to have the tracheotomy. One question that I saw recently was, can you start PO or how soon after tracheotomy can you consider starting PO, starting that oral feeding? I'm going to give you a little more context. So because I kind of just threw the general question at you. This actually came up. It was a specific question about a specific patient. It was a young patient in their forties who the doctor put the light, placed them on a diet. Basically it was in the orders that came from the OR. It's like, you know, they have the tracheotomy and the diet was ordered. It was regular diet, thin liquids. And the question was, can you do that? You know, can you start a patient early? And I'll, I'll, you know, can you go ahead and just start PO without, you know, the assessment piece and everything when they have a tracheostomy tube and does anybody ever do this? Well, obviously it gets done because this person was saying it was done at their, their facility. What are your just general thoughts on that? So far as, you know, when we, when should we consider the diet? Who considers the diet? Are there exceptions to the rule kind of thing? And, you know, I don't even know that we have a rule, but are there exceptions to the rule as to, as to, you know, ordering diets and kind of getting them started? I think when I think of timing and like, you know, what should we do versus what shouldn't we do? What comes to mind is the the patient and the, the vulnerability of the patient and the consequences of aspiration. So when I'm just thinking of patients that I've worked with over, you know, 20 plus years, One patient group that comes to mind where I felt like we could be a little more, you know, like, I guess, aggressive or liberal would be our young trauma patients. So those younger trauma patients that didn't have really any other comorbidities, they were trained very quickly. Our our young trauma patients were trained very quickly, you know, well within that first week of intubation. If they didn't think they were going to be able to wean a patient within just a few days of being intubated, they got a trach. So they were young, they were healthy, they hadn't been intubated very long at all. They were trained quickly to facilitate weaning from the vent. And some of those patients, I think, you know, we we got a we got consulted on those patients, but those were the patients that maybe, you know, once they were trached, they then weaned very quickly. And those were patients that often swallowed, you know, pretty well. They protected their airway well. They were also the patient population that were often, not always, but often up walking the halls with PT and they were going to be discharged quickly. So those weren't the 
super vulnerable, frail patients that we would be concerned if they aspirated a little bit, it was going to turn into an aspiration pneumonia. So that's one patient population that I think, you know, often did okay, maybe even with just a bedside swallowing evaluation. And, you know, everybody has got their different thoughts and opinions about does everybody with a trach need a, you know, instrumental exam? And, you know, I think we all have to make our own decisions there. But then on the the kind of the flip side of that is the frail ICU patient, elderly, multiple comorbidities who is intubated a week, trached, currently on the ventilator. Obviously, that's the patient that's going to have those consequences if they develop or if they aspirate. So obviously, that's the patient where we would be a lot more conservative in our recommendations. Yeah. And I think what you're describing, and I'm going to share one patient population in just a second, but is getting at what I kind of had in the back of my head and I wasn't stating very well. It's not a cookie cutter approach. There's no like one answer to say everybody needs this or everybody needs that, you know, or we have to do it this way because it is going to be different. Like you said, depending on age, diagnosis, comorbidities, there's just so much that has to be taken into the picture. And our patient population, I worked in a level one trauma center also, but our population that we saw the most liberal approach with was our head and neck cancer patients. Our ENTs would order a diet almost immediately. And I learned a lot from my ENTs and talking with them because they would share and they were considering some of those parameters we heard from Langmore, where if they were mobile, young, you know, not on bed rest, you know, all that, you know, the list, they were like, we're going to feed them. And they were even saying, oh yeah, they're aspirating. We changed their anatomy, but they, their bodies can handle it. And so they would, they would be a little bit more aggressive and liberal with some of those head and neck cancer patients because they didn't have that list of issues and concerns that contribute to the problem or contribute to the risk, I should say, you know, and the risk of complications. So I learned from them a lot. I, I became, I guess you could say a little more, maybe a little more liberal as I worked with them and a little bit more understanding of how we had to look at everything. You know, it wasn't cookie cutter. There was no one answer. And I think yeah. you'll see differences between facilities. I agree with you. I think that was a patient population. I, I worked at those pa- patients always, you know, throughout my career as well. And the surgical patients in particular, our head and neck surgeons were quite liberal because just like you said, they didn't have those risk factors for developing pneumonia. They were aspirating, but they, they felt like quality of life. Also just, you know, they didn't want those patients to have exacerbation of dysphagia because they were just sitting there not using that, you know, those, those muscles. Another group of patients with head and neck cancer that we did still treat a little more conservatively were those patients undergoing chemo radiation. Mm-hmm. So those patients did have a you know a, a higher risk, and we were a little more conservative with them. And the surgical patients, uh, the the surgeons were a little more liberal. So it just kind of depends on what their their treatment was too. I think. Yeah. Well, and that's a good qualifier. And again, makes that point of it's not cookie cutter. Like we can't say, you know, you do this with this patient population and you do that with this patient population because there's just too much variability. Yeah. The, um, 
So if we get in there, if that, let's go, let's switch gears a little to the tracheostomy patient back to, back to that a little bit. What about the use of speaking valves and swallowing? Like, do you have to have a speaking valve before you address swallowing? Like what's your preference and what did you do in your practice? That that is such a, I think, common question that I I questioned and, and was asked many times when I was at the bedside working with these patients. And then now as a clinical specialist, specialist with Passy Mirror, we get that question quite a bit. So when I worked with patients, I really wanted to get those orders simultaneously. And so if I, before we had our trach team in place, sometimes I would only get an order for a swallowing evaluation and not the Passimir valve or vice versa. Once we just established our trach team and got that order set, we were getting those orders simultaneously. So I think that is ideal. Get those orders at the same time. And then that way it's the speech pathologist's role to see what is appropriate for that particular patient. So for me, when I was working with patients, the very first thing that I wanted to do was to see if we could get that patient access to their upper airway. So first, I would try to see if we could get the cuff deflated and get a passimir valve on. And that was really regardless if they were on the ventilator or if they were not. That was still my first kind of line of defense. Like, let's get this patient set up for a more successful swallow, or at least the potential to have a more successful swallow. You know, we know if we can get airflow to the upper airway and we can restore that positive airway pressure with getting the cuff down and a valve on, that's, we're normalizing that system. They now have subglottic pressure. They now may have improved sensation in their upper airway. So they may sense if they aspirate. And then for me, I think one of the biggest things is we give them back their ability to cough. If we have this patient population with tracheostomy, who we know have a very high risk of aspiration and a very high risk of silent aspiration, and then if they aspirate, well, if their cuff is up, too bad, they really can't do anything about it. If you know they, they probably won't sense it, and then there's no way they can cough and clear that aspiration. So cuff down, valve on to help with normalizing physiology, but really big, give them back their ability to cough. I, th I think that's huge. I think we've learned a lot too the last few years about the cough. I know Michelle Trochet has done a lot of work and research, and I like the way she describes airway protection that you know, good vocal fold closure, yeah, that's really important. And that's kind of on one continue, one side of the continuum, but then also the cough is on the other side of the continuum. And so both of those can be impaired if we have that cuff inflated. So sorry, that was a long-winded answer too. <laughs> Ideally, and if possible, cuff down valve on. And that's always what I wanted. However, to just say a little bit more about that. I did not practice, and I still don't believe that it has to be a prerequisite for a swallowing assessment. Even though it's ideal, and even though there's quite a bit of research that shows patients often swallow better, more efficiency, more safety of swallowing, cuff down valve on, there are still some patients that I saw, so anecdotally I can say this, but then also research says, you know, that there are some patients that can swallow 
with their cuff inflated, even during mechanical ventilation. And in my opinion, those patients deserve an assessment just like any other patient in the hospital. So if they're are our criteria really, you know, loosely, of course, we would look at the individualized patient, but medically stable, awake and alert. Those were sort of the, the, the big ones. And if they were medically stable and they were awake and alert, regardless of readiness for cuff deflation and valve placement, we would still do a very cursory bedside swallow a valve just kind of to see, are they ready? And then we would do fees on those patients. And sometimes you would see terrible secretion management and terrible swallow, and they really weren't ready for anything except maybe a few ice chips just to getting get them to start utilizing that upper airway musculature. We could talk about ice chips in a minute if you want to, but then there would be times that we would do a fees on a patient with a cuff inflated. And of course, you know, their swallow had to be different. It had to be different because of lack of airflow and lack of pressure. But even though maybe it wasn't quote normal, it was still functional. And we were able to get that some of those patients, some PO, sometimes even, you know, full diet. So Again, long answer to no, no, those patients. That's a good answer. <laughs> and I want to share one thing that ties into what you're saying because you keep you're mentioning the cuff and if it's inflated and the impact and everything. And I do want to share that there is one study that was published in 2012. Amathal, I might be saying the name wrong. It's A-M-A-T-H-I-E-U at all, 2012. And they actually looked at cuff pressure and the impact that cuff pressure has on swallowing. And they found that any pressure above 25 centimeters of water pressure would start to significantly impact the swallow. Slightly below that, there was a little potential impact, but when it got to 25, that's when you started seeing a significant negative impact on swallow. And I only share that because when we think about these cuff inflated conditions, it's not just that the cuff's inflated, but how it's, if it's properly managed and actually inflated at the right pressure, you know, that there's not too much pressure on the tracheal wall, the cuff's not overinflated, excuse me, the cuff's not overinflated, those types of things also, you know, are going to influence what we see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll also mention there's a um, bibliography if people are wanting a lot of research on this at www.passimere.com slash slash bibliographies. We have a bibliography through 2022, uh, most of 2022, and there's a dysphagia icon. It's all the articles, there's a legend with icons and there's a dysphagia icon and any articles addressing dysphagia questions and the research are marked with that so that they're easy to find. And I only share that because you mentioned a lot of the benefits of Mm -hmm. having the valve on and some of the things that it helps with. And all of that's been shown in research. It's not just you know, what you thought you saw when you were practicing, but there's actually research to, to support, support those happenings. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great, I think thing, find a few of those articles that really support the work you're trying to do in the ICU and maybe get some of those articles to some of the colleagues too, you know, cause I think some of us still have that resistance in our facilities. Like, wait, what do you mean? You're going to do a swallowing evaluation and this patient's still on the ventilator or and that's another question I think that we get sometimes is, 
what, you know, what if they're on full event support versus spontaneous modes? And I don't know if we want to get into all of that, but I think that's another reason the more we as speech pathologists understand about those modes and settings and how, how they work and how they impact the breathing and swallowing coordination and those kinds of things, I think that can all be, that can be really helpful as we're trying to advocate for these patients and kind of talk the talk with our RT colleagues. And so that, that can be helpful. Well, I don't want our listeners to think they're missing out because I'm not going to talk with you right now about vent modes and settings and the influence of those on swallow, but that is coming up in an upcoming episode. So they just need to stay tuned and kind of watch for that because we will have more information on that coming out. But so I don't want to think, I don't want them to think they're missing out because we're not going to go into detail right now. The only thing I want to touch on before we end, because we're actually running out of time, unfortunately, because I think we're having a great discussion and I like all Mm -hmm. the information you're sharing, but let's, you mentioned ice chips. Let's touch on the ice chips because we know there's an ice chip protocol used with patients that has been shown to have benefit. Mm-hmm. But can we talk a little bit about that in relationship to tracheostomy patients? Sure. When when we do an assessment, you know, especially if it's an instrumentalist assessment, and and I think fees can be a great instrumental exam. Really, both of them. And, you know, I think we've learned both the video fluoroscopy and fees are gold standards. I think the fees is sometimes in, an easier exam in the ICU, just because it's portable. We're coming to the patient. They don't have to leave the floor. I think what we can see with the fees can often be really helpful with secretion management. But once, you know, whichever exam it is, because obviously sometimes it it may be the video fluoroscopy, but whatever our findings are, obviously that will dictate what we recommend. A lot of our patients with tracheostomy and, and mechanical ventilation, they have so many reasons to have dysphagia that unfortunately, sometimes we do those exams and we do find severe dysphagia or moderate to severe dysphagia, and maybe they're not ready for a PO diet. Uh, You know, we feel like it's just too risky to recommend a PO diet. But instead of just saying, well, strict in PO, we'll be back in a week, which of course, none of of us are really doing that. Again, that was probably what we used to do before we, you know, know to do better now. Uh, We are thinking about whether or not these patients could be getting ice chips and being put on some type of ice chip protocol. There are a few articles, um, one in particular um, ice chip protocol was, um, I think it's Jessica Pasigna, and and I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right either, um, and Susan Langmore. And they recommended this ice chip protocol on patients with severe dysphagia that would have otherwise been NPO. And what they found was that, you know, when they used this protocol, which of course included really good oral hygiene, along with, you know, not lots and lots of ice chips all day long, but with specific, you know, number and and frequency of ice chips, these patients were not, there was no, um, development development of pneumonia, and it was found to be safe. 
for some patients. And so I think that considering ice chips for some of these uh, patients is something that we should look into, talk to our medical teams about. There's just a lot of benefits, you know, ice chips Number one, feel really good for the patients. They like it. I think so many times when I would deflate a cuff and place a valve for the first time, you know, many times that would be the first thing that a patient would say, like, now can I have some water? Well, maybe they're not quite ready for a water protocol, but maybe some ice chips. They like it. Um, it's familiar, it's cold, it can be good for oral hygiene, it can help with xerostomia, can help clear up some of those secretions in the pharynx potentially. So lots of benefits to, to ice chips. With the ice chip protocol, one thing I mean, I will share, their study did look at severe dysphagia, but we don't have a lot of information on the use of ice chips and patients with tracheostomy. So if using it, I would just put a little caveat to, you know, monitor the patient closely and, and just be aware of that because they can, they have that, I guess you could say that comorbidity of the tracheostomy that may change it a little, but there's a lot of benefit. We know that, you know, the best exercise for swallowing is swallowing, you know, actually doing the task. So ice chips can certainly have a lot of benefits in a lot of areas like you listed. Yeah. Well, I think too, if, if we see dysfunction and we're going to try to target it at all with exercise, then the patient has to have, you know, some moisture in their mouth to be able to participate with those exercises too. So that's another time, maybe during therapy where you could administer ice chips, yeah. but again, talk with your team, make those decisions, you know, make those individualized decisions, of course. No, I agree. And, un and unfortunately we're going to have to end with that note of talk with your team to make those decisions because we've run out of time, but Carmen, I appreciate you joining me again and talking through, you know, working with these patients, getting into that early intervention aspect of our care, you know, and seeing these patients in the ICU and, and getting things started for them in the areas of communication and swallowing. And we focused a little bit on swallowing, but, you know, like you said, what we're doing elsewhere, the interventions we're providing, we can provide an ICU. The patient's ready and appropriate. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com slash podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.